Welcome to the Books on Air podcast. I'm Suzanne Harris, and on our podcast, we talk to the authors about themselves, their books, of course, and their ideas. I've learned that every book has two stories, and I always want you, my listener, to find out both of those stories. Joining me today is a fascinating man. His name is Alan Joseph Oliver, and his book is titled Thinking on the Other Side of Zero, An Intuitive Philosophy of Mind, Memory, and Reality. Alan, welcome to Books on Air. It's such a pleasure to have you today. I can't wait to talk about this book. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Every book, as I said in the introduction, has a backstory. And the backstory for your book is a pretty interesting one. Would you share that with our listeners? How this book came about, how it came to be? Yes, certainly I'll explain that. Well, I'll try to explain it. Um, I've always been aware that I think differently and... It has taken a long time to get to the bottom of it and it started um, when during the Depression, uh, I was born in 1935 and in 1939 um, I had febrile convulsions and I didn't know this until a conversation with my oldest brother at the when I was the age of sixty, and um, anyway, it turned out that at that time I'd had febrile convulsions and had gone to hospital, and my family had written me off because two earlier siblings had died from that condition that was in the Great Depression, and it was common for families with young children uh, in poor families like ours was, that um, at some point you'd have a high temperature. And apparently my high temperature got very high and it was prolonged. And they said afterwards, in this conversation with my brother Gordon, that um, they'd already written me off because I was just as sick as those other two earlier siblings had been and both of them had died. But anyway, for some reason, I didn't die. And when I came home, they found that I knew nothing that I had known prior to the convulsions. And I suppose the high temperature just reset everything in my brain and that's how it was and I was brought up as the um, defective one in the family. Oh dear, (laughs) how interesting. Now febrile convulsions are brought on by a high temperature during an illness, is that right? That's right. Okay, I just wanted to make sure that our our listeners understood what that was. Yes. So that... Go ahead. Some of this I've explained in part two, not part one, but it's it's right to actually give you the information now just to know what we're looking at. And uh, I have 
realized later in life that um, people that I'm in a conversation with or people I work for even, uh, they get the Alan, they get the Alan that they've decided I am. And if they think I'm a nitwit, well, that's what they get. If they think I'm reliable, that's what they get. And it's taken me a long time to realise that's what was going on too, but that's how it is. So I'm sort of perpetually a blank state uh, until I'm in a relationship and that relationship gets established in whatever started it off and it remains that way. But for other people, um, as I said, they get who they think I am. And uh, I realised it because I once had a casual job at IBM changing light globes and things like that. <laughs> and um, this this manager just assumed I could do whatever she said this was the task and I would do it and it all worked fine. And I would say she was the best manager I ever worked for. Wow. But that's, how, that's how it works. Well, I, I, I'm expecting the intellectually stimulating and thought-provoking Alan today because as I read your book, those words came into my mind. Your ideas, I just find it fascinating. Now, tell me a little bit about the origins of the book, because this is quite deep. Uh, there's a yeah. lot a lot here. There's a lot of meat here. Let's give our listeners a little bit of an idea of what the book is about. Well, the book is about really how the mind works. And I wondered about that because everybody seemed to think I had a different sort of mind. And I suppose what what really started me was uh, at some point, not at some point, in 1972, um, our youngest child at the age of just a bit over two, he died from cancer, which came on when he was just 11 months old. And um, that sort of started uh, the grieving process, especially for my wife, because one of the strange things about me is that I don't have grief. But anyway, um, 10 years later, naturally, our... Our marriage finished uh, because I was um, not perceptibly grieving like she was and she thought I didn't care. And so that's where that went. Anyway, oh, when was it? About oh, 1985 or something while I had that funny little job at IBM, uh, I met some people who uh, were talking about healing and 
they decided to join a yoga course, and you know, just a night class. So I said, all right, I'll go along with that. So I went with them, and the teacher wasn't teaching stretchy yoga. He was talk- teaching Patanjali's Yoga Sutras. And um, so after being on that thing for about a year, the following year I started the next one. And in that time, he'd sort of realised that I was in this state that he'd been lecturing about in the Yoga Sutras. And he didn't tell me that, of course. Um, He just said one night in class, he said, oh, uh, whatever her name is, this young woman uh, wants to know if you could help her with her cat, and I think you can, so you go and do that. And I thought, what the hell's going on here? Anyway, I agreed to go and see her, and so I walked into the house and she said come in here I've got a seat for you and there was a big bean bag which I sat on and she said I've got this disturbed cat it was a stray it has in the year we've had it it's never washed itself you can't hold it for more than a minute and it doesn't meow it snarls (laughs) so anyway she dropped this smelly cat on my lap and I thought, what am I supposed to do? So without knowing anything, I just put my hand on its head and the cat went to sleep. And immediately I had vivid lights flashing in my head and all of that, like like you're trying to watch about five computer games at once or five migraine headaches. (laughs) And anyway... I thought, well, I'll just sit here and see what happens. And about, you know, after a long time, probably about 20 minutes or something, the flashing light stopped and I could visualise, which is something I've never done, I could visualise walking through vegetation and when I thought about it, I could see that it was grass except that it wasn't green. It was yellow, brown, red, you know, things like that. And as soon as I thought about that, I could realise that I was looking from the cat's eye level. And when I realised that, suddenly it changed to normal colours, normal size. And then I was aware that the cat was very familiar with this garden. And at the same time, I knew I'd never seen it before. So I just, because the cat felt comfortable in the garden, I just let it stay there. And it stayed there for about another 20 minutes. And then I knew the cat was going to wake up. And it woke up and started to wash itself. And the lady was just almost as dumbfounded as I was. As I am. So anyway, I accepted her offer of the coffee and uh, just had that and couldn't leave the place fast enough. But nothing (laughs) like that had ever happened before? No, never, nothing. And um, 
amazing. So the next week when I went to the yoga class, of course, everybody wanted to know about all of this and how did you do it? And well, I don't know how I did it. And um, and then the teacher said, "Well, that's what I, that's what Patanjali is talking about when he talks about samapati, which is the coalescence of two minds." And that's where I was. And so things just ex- expanded from there. Other people um, contacted me. Could you help my friend and all of this? So I did that. And um, one of them was a lady that had a fractured tibia. And we um, wanted to know if I could help. She said, uh, it's I've had surgery, they put a steel pin in it, uh, but the problem is that the fracture site isn't knitting. And um, I said, God, what am I supposed to do about this? Anyway, <clears throat> nonchalant as ever. <laughs> Fake nonchalance, of course. And um, <laughs> so I said, Rodeo, well, just sit here. I want you to close your eyes and I'll close mine and I'll think about the fracture site. And when I did that, um, I sort of got the impression that that part of her leg was all dark and black. And I thought, well, the only thing I could do with that is just bring in some bright light, yellow, gold, whatever you want to think, sunlight. And... um, See how that goes. And I thought, all right. And um, I opened my eyes to say, maybe you can open your eyes now. And instead she was sitting there with her mouth gaping, saying, oh, Alan, how did you do that? You just took all this black stuff out of my leg and filled it up with bright golden light. And so I thought, oh, dear, all right. So anyway, she said, I've... I've I'm having an x-ray next week. Uh, And if nothing has changed, they're going to have to think about what else they can do. Anyway, the following week she rang up and said, the fracticide is knitting, so thank you very much. So I said, right, thank you. And um, I, I... I thought, this is mad. I can't be a healer because I don't know what I'm doing. And I certainly didn't, you know, I didn't charge anybody money because I thought that would be dishonest to start with. So there we go. And things just went on from there. Alan, those are amazing stories. I'm just stunned. How were you, how did you come in contact with Dr. Bevan Reed, because I know he was a a mentor and a a big influence on you. How did the two oh, of you he, meet? Yeah, well, well, he um, <clears throat> he came up in the conversation in the yoga class because uh, <clears throat> the teacher was at the university. Um, he was a psychologist and hypnotist, and um, <clears throat> so he knew about. Dr. Reed's experiment where he had demonstrated instrument, yeah, instrument, listen to me, 
information in space. And I said, gee, he would be an interesting man to talk to. And he said, well, I'll give you the phone number. You can ring him up. So I called Dr. Reed and explained a few of the things that I was doing. And he said, oh, you're the right person to talk to. So we, we checked on the back, on the phone for about a half an hour and agreed to call back later on on the weekend when he wasn't at work. So <clears throat> we had lots of conversations after that and he introduced me to David Bohm's book, Wholeness and the Implicate Order. And so in a way there were three of us in this conversation. And... Um, <clears throat> Sorry, but I've got a funny throat. So anyway, uh, that's that's how I met him, and uh, we just met often and talked often, and um, it just went on from there. At one point, uh, he had um, called me and said, you know, would you go to this conference in Europe? And he explained what it was, and it was about consciousness. <clears throat> and I said, I'll, I'll see what I can do. And my wife, at the time, I wasn't very well. <clears throat> and my wife, second wife, um, Cecily, she said, no, I'd rather you didn't. We've got to get you fixed first. So I didn't go to that one. But anyway, uh, we still kept talking. And um, through that, I met... Um, Dr. Hooping Hu, he's a physicist, journalist, and he had a an online journal called the Journal of Consciousness Exploration and Re- Research. And so I um, contributed a, a few essays to that over the years on um, consciousness from the yogi perspective. And um, so that sort of got me writing. And um, so we just went on from there. And uh, that was a roundabout way of where we finally got to the point where I thought I should write all of this down from the way, you know, what little science I learnt in technical school um, and uh, so I did that and Dr. Reed um, he wrote the foreword to that book which I had called Wholeness and the Implicated Order so that's how it came about and um, sadly he died in oh, I think it was 2012 2010 something like that mm. and um so that's where that finished. But um, <clears throat> I just, you know, as it was, I published that book, first of all, with that title in 2006. And <clears throat> ever since then, uh, I'd kept in contact with Bevan Reed as long as I could while he was still around. I uh, went and stayed with him and his wife on their farm one weekend and... Uh, so there we were. And um, so anyway, in the time after that was published to the time 
now, um, I had been aware that where I got to at the end of that book, uh, I had created, you know, the the diagrams based on the yoga diagram and of how I thought it worked, and then I had to work out a way to think about taking it further. And while uh, in my essay writing with JCER Journal, um, I met a, a, a lady that was born in India. She was now a scientist in America. She originally came there, headhunted because she was a PhD in mathematics and all sorts of things like that. And anyway, we collaborated on um, a couple of the essays and she essentially wrote from a science perspective what I tried to say in that first that book and um, thinking on the other side of zero. And the strange thing is that day by day it's just become obvious that it wasn't just a catchy title, it was actually a statement that this is what we really need to talk about because the other side of zero is where consciousness lives and we all share the same consciousness. There is only one mind, uh, shall we say. Well, there's only one self. And that's that one out there. I am just stunned at all of the coalescence of events and people and things that have come into your life that have brought you to where you are. I mean, I, your story is stunning. It's just amazing. I can't, it just almost sounds like whenever there's something that needs to happen next, there's a way that it happens for you. Yeah, and I've got nothing to do with that. That's right, I'm just there. When you were writing this book, you've been writing for a long time. When you were writing for this book, sometimes when authors write something surprising will happen. Was there anything surprising that happened or anything that you learned about yourself that was different or unexpected when you were writing this book? Well, I could only write it when um, something that had come up somewhere in a conversation or something I looked at in the newspaper or whatever, uh, and I thought, no, that's crazy. Um, and say, so, well, if it's crazy, what do I want to say about it? And you know, the, the strange things are, are. I can remember one year uh, when that. Oh. Anyway, in the, in about nineteen eighty six or so, maybe longer closer to 2000 and something. But anyway, I saw this thing in the paper written by a, <clears throat> oh, 
shall we say, a minister of religion somewhere in Sydney. (coughs) And he was going on very much like what has been going on in America with Roe versus Wade or whatever it was called. Right. Uh, he, He was saying how bad women are to have abortions and all of that. So I just wrote a little letter to the editor and I said, how could any man possibly have the right to criticise a woman for having an abortion? Because, and this is controversial too, I suppose, um, there's only one life and it just, we all share it. And I said, as far as what they're talking about, the embryo that is being aborted, that is a part of the woman's body. It's not an individual until it's born and the umbilical cord is cut. So I said, from my perspective, to refuse a woman her right over what happens to her body is just as violent to her as rape would be. And they actually published it in the week in in the paper. Wow! And uh, so, so I thought, yeah, right, there we are. And um, many years later, when my wife and I, had, Cecily, had moved to South Australia. Um, <clears throat> I went to a U3A meeting and we had a, a lecture by a doctor, PhD, philosopher, talking about the meaning of life. And um, <clears throat> all I heard was that, you know, him talking for nearly an hour quoting poetry and all of that, and he never got around to what I thought would be the meaning of life. <laughs> so anyway, at the end, when he asked for questions, uh, there were dead silence, and I thought, oh, i better say something. So <laughs> I put my hand up, <clears throat> and I said, my question, is it fair to say? And he said, fair to say what? <clears throat> I said, is it fair to say... <clears throat> that life does not begin at conception. And he said, how could you possibly say that? And I said, well, for conception to actually take place, both the sperm and the ovum have to be alive. And he said, yes. So what's the point? I said, so therefore... The life in the embryo, when it is established, is already a part of the life of its parents. And you could take all the way, that all the way back to the first appearance of life. So therefore, there's only one life, and we are all living it. So I waved my hand out to the class and I said, there you go. You're all Alan. (laughs) Alan. So there you go. You are so interesting. You and I could sit could sit here. I could sit here and listen to you talk 
for an hour. I know that we have intrigued the people who are listening to us right now, and I'm sure that they're thinking to themselves, where can I find this book? And I want to make sure that we tell them and that I give them specific titles and spell names, etc. It is available on Amazon. The title of the book, Thinking on the Other Side of Zero. The second half is An Intuitive philosophy of mind, memory, and reality. But I suspect if you put just thinking on the other side of zero into the search feature on the Amazon website, now make sure in that drop-down menu that you select books, then put in the title by Alan, A-L-A-N, Joseph, J-O-S-E-P-H, Oliver. O-L-I-V-E-R. Click on it. The book will come up. And the book cover is lovely, Alan. It's seagulls on this beautiful blue sky background. Is there any significance to that cover, or is it just something that the publishers chose? No, no, it's not the publisher that chose it. It was in their first publication of that book, a friend of mine uh, that I worked with. Well, at the time, I was a counsellor in local government in South Australia. And one of the IT fellows was a photographer. Oh. And he's, and I told him, you know, I was writing this book, and he said, um, oh, you know, what, what are you going to do for the cover? So he gave me the picture of the cover and the back cover as well. And now this is called Thinking on the Other Side of Zero, Part 1. And the next one is part two, which goes into what I was writing about 17 years later after the first one. And uh, I got him to take some photos of a a feather because the question with the feather is that, okay, here's a feather that's just a feather, but when you look at it, It's black and white, and the black comes first and the white comes afterwards. And so that's an expression of interest because if you say all of that has to exist at the follicle before it starts to form the feather, all that's in there is the physical components but also the information to have that feather be unlike every other feather and at the same time collectively all the feathers are recognisable as that kind of bird so that's more about information in space You are so interesting and I'm sitting here, my mind is just ping-ponging all over the place, that's what I meant when I said intellectually stimulating and thought-provoking. No one could sit down and start to read your book and not be immediately pulled in and their brain immediately begins to be stimulated. And you've done such a wonderful job of... I'm a little lost for words. I mean, it's just amazing to me when we've talked 
what's happened to you, the way things have happened, and the way that you're communicating these things not only to me, but to the whole world through your book. Alan, thank you for this perspective. I mean, it's it's just so... I told you before we started that I have a quote that I like that I sort of think is why I do these interviews. It's an Oliver Wendell Holmes quote, and it's, The human mind, once stretched to a new idea, never returns to its original dimensions. And I think that quote is so apropos of your book. It's just no one who sits down and reads this. Their mind has to be stretched in different ways because this is such a fabulous way to look at things. When you started talking about the feather, I immediately went there right with you. And I started to think about feathers, and I thought, well, okay, how does it know? How does it know that that part's black and that part's white? So you made me immediately start to think about that with the stories and the cover of the book. Your friend's photograph is absolutely beautiful. I thought when I looked at it how perfect it was for the book. I have one last question for you. Now, We've told our our listeners that they can get the book at Amazon, and I also know that it's available from your publisher, Ex Libris. Is that right? Yep. And also, um, practically every bookshop, I would say, uh, I I think the ones Ex Libris have noted was Barnes & Noble. Um, But anyway, there'll be bookshops. I know in, in Australia, they're... A number of bookshop distributors, so they'll be at your local bookshop possibly. But instead of going to Amazon, if you just Google Alan Joseph Oliver, uh, it will come up with Thinking on the Other Side of Zero, and it will be either part one or part two. Now, part two is where I go into which is a probably a summation of the 17 years between what is now part one and part two. And in those 17 years, um, uh, that's where I spent time as a counsellor, in local government, that is, and... Um, my wife and I were renovating an old house and all of those sort of things, and then we moved to be closer to her daughter uh, to help her at a time when there was a bit things were a bit difficult. And um, then recently, um, 2001, my wife Cecily died of cancer, oh. and. So there was a lot of things to tidy up with that part of my life finishing. And I eventually moved interstate to live with my daughter and son-in-law. And that's when I thought, yeah, this is this has to be where I get back to writing down all of this. And... Fortuitously, a friend of mine gave me a link to a film about the life and times of David Bohm, which Bevan Reed had introduced me to his book. And 
And in that film, David Bohm says, you know, um, his whole thing is about wholeness uh, and the order within that wholeness. And I thought, that's exactly what we've been talking about. So Bohm said uh, the explanation for wholeness um, will never come from physics. It will have to come from someone outside of physics. And <laughs> I thought, well, <laughs> you couldn't get any more outside of physics than me. I've never studied <laughs> it. So um, that was a good challenge. So, and uh, because I respected everything that Bohm and his colleague, Mesel Hiley, had written and talked about, I thought, yeah, I can do that, and um, we'll see where that goes. So that became part two, <clears throat> and it's possible that I might have to do go a bit further <laughs> with a part three at some point, but anyway, I don't know whether the dementia will hold off long enough for that. But anyway, that's where we are. Well, I have to say that what happened to you as a child is a gift. The The things that have <clears throat> happened in your life would never, ever have happened had you not had those convulsions as a child. And I, right. I, for one, am so glad that that happened because you have such a unique perspective and such a, a unique insight that I'm so glad you're sharing it with the world. Let me ask you one last question. Yes. When our listeners get a copy of the book and become readers, and I said this to you before, they won't sit down and this is not a, a book that you will just sit down and devour and go cover to cover. This is a book that you will sit down and you will read parts of it and your brain will be so full you must have you will have to think and you will have to think about how how this is changing your perspective and how this perspective is different and you'll sort of internalize that then and then you'll go on to the next idea this is something that will take people time to consume but they will eventually get to that last page and they will read the last page of either Volume 1 or Volume 2, and they will close the back cover, either electronically or physically. When they close that back cover, Alan, is there a bottom-line message that you would like that reader to take away for themselves? Um, oh, that's such a big question. <laughs> I know, I know. Sorry. The, I would say the bottom line is that it, if they can take away the bottom line being that there really is another way to think. I think it might have been Einstein that originally said this, but he said the way the world is today is a direct result of the way we think. We can never change that without thinking in a different way. And I think he's spot on. 
And the different way is accessible to everybody, really, because underlying all of that is the fact that there is only one consciousness. And and this is so different from the current woke way of thinking. Mm. Everything's all about me, look at me. And um, really, to get to that other side, you have to set aside your individual perspective and um, and my individual perspective was obviously set aside in that time when everything was wiped out. Yes, you're absolutely right. Alan, I can't thank you enough for being my guest today on Books on Air. It's just been entertaining, enlightening. There are all kinds of adjectives that I could use, but it's been an absolute delight and pleasure to talk with you, and I really do hope that we get to talk again. Thanks so much for being my guest. Well, you can talk to me anytime. Now, remember, anytime. <laughs> I would love to. It's too bad I'm not a little closer. I'm in America and you're yeah. in Australia. It's too bad we're not yeah. a little closer. Yeah. Now, now, remember, you can find Alan Joseph Oliver's book, Thinking on the Other Side of Zero, An Intuitive Philosophy of Mind, Memory, and Reality, on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Ex Libris, just Google and, and come up with a copy, because you will want to read this book. You've been listening to the Books on Air podcast, brought to you on webtalkradio.net. You can also hear this podcast on Spotify, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, and Apple Podcasts. I'm Suzanne Harris, and it's been such a pleasure to have you today. I hope that you'll join me for our next Book on, Books on Air podcast. Remember, you never know who's going to be here, and you really never know what we're going to talk about. So thank you so very much for listening.